This is Suzanne Cosgrove reporting for John Lothian News. Today we're talking with NASDAQ's Salim Dayar, who is part of the Toronto-based research team that covers listed cannabis companies, many of which trade on NASDAQ. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Suzanne. It's really great to be back. So the last time we talked was in January, and since then some things have changed in, in the cannabis investing space, and some have stayed the same. Uh, to start, what's changed? Uh, oh, uh, that's definitely a, a really loaded question, Suzanne. Um, but perhaps, you know, a, a good starting point is looking at where we were at the end of the fourth quarter of 2020 uh, and maybe bringing us up to speed, so to speak. So to recap, cannabis names were really a standout outperformer over the fourth quarter of 2020 as the space effectively climbed 52% handily beating the approximate 12% gain for the S&P 500 and really outpacing virtually every other S&P 500 sector. We really continue to see incredible momentum across the space with very concentrated gains uh, in early November when both Canadian and U.S. names saw heightened interest on the back of those state-level ballot initiatives that we discussed last. And really since then, we've continued to see momentum across the space on a series of catalysts but perhaps one of the more salient changes that we've seen since we last spoke has really been a pickup in volatility. Yeah. The latest Cannabis Market Insights, which your group publishes, noted that in the 12 weeks between November 5th, 2020 and February 6th, 2021, cannabis equities as a group outpaced broader equity markets in both Canada and the US, as you've noted, but the sector also had the highest volatility. So can you give me some more color on this? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a, that's a really good uh, transition. So a lot of the pickup in volatility has been somewhat recent, um, coming on the back of elevated retail participation specifically, perhaps best embodied by the Wall Street bets community, as well as various other subreddits and social media uh, platforms. During February, we, we saw this pronounced wave uh, of volatility, which would have prompted very substantial activity across a lot of actually dual listed Canadian players particularly Afria and Tilray, as the retail community attempted to essentially make an arbitrage play given the company's announced merger back in December. We also saw very pronounced activity across the Canadian name Sundial Growers, uh, who was also a target for many of those retail investors as the stock was essentially hammered in 2020, losing over 90% of its value. Now, the stock also saw a concentrated and substantial pickup in short interest in 2020, which, as we learned from our experience with GameStock back in uh, January, has really become a focal point for, for many of those retail investors. And for many of them, the, rep, the weapon of choice has really been the use of options, which in the case of highly shorted stocks, like cannabis names can actually force a very significant and somewhat sustained squeeze. And to put this volatility and this elevated use of options into perspective, on February 11th alone, Sundial Growers would have seen over 2.6 million options contracts traded, followed by Tilray at around 1 million, and then Afria at around 300,000. And in all of these cases, the elevated activity, the pickup in auctions would have, would have uh, essentially hit um, historic highs. So it's, it's worth noting that a lot of the pickup in volatility we've seen across cannabis names 
has been very much driven by that elevated retail participation and to recap has been very much been relegated to dual listed Canadian players. Amazing. So are Canadian and U.S. companies performing similarly? So I think if we were having this conversation a few months ago, the response would be much more predictable and relatively straightforward, but but times have really changed. Um, and the simple answer is no. While we saw a convergence of performance between uh, Canadian and U.S. names as we approach the end of the fourth quarter of 2020, the story has really drastically changed in the first quarter of 2021. Namely, we've seen a massive divergence in performance across Canadian versus U.S. names. And while historically U.S.-based MSOs, that's multi-state operators, have tended to outperform their Canadian counterparts, this is no longer the case. Canadian names have actually outpaced their U.S. peers, gaining approximately 70% in, uh, in Q120 versus a 58% gain for, for U.S. players. And this is as of roughly the end of February with the vast majority of these gains concentrated in early February amid that broader market volatility. And this is despite no meaningful change in fundamentals across the space, underscoring again, the very substantial uh, pickup in retail participation that we continue to see across the sector. Another thing I wanted to ask you about is I know that you closely filed the US elections late last year, including the mm -hmm. US Senate races. How do they impact the cannabis market? How are they currently impacting? Yeah, so a, a really good question there. And so the simple answer here is momentum, right? The Democratic Senate sweep that came in early January saw a very notable pickup uh, across cannabis benchmarks. We encountered very immense inflows uh, on the back of the event with the first two weeks of January alone notching over $200 million worth of inflows into the ETF MG Alternative Harvest Index Fund. At the time, the last time we had seen weekly inflows this substantial was way back in February of 2019. So in historical terms, uh, the activity was very significant. Now, shifting towards U.S.-specific vehicles, the recently launched uh, MSOs, that's the uh, Advisor Shares um, Cannabis ETF that focuses on U.S. exposure, um, that's that uh, ETF saw approximately $330 million worth of inflows, not only outpacing its entire Q4 activity, but also outpacing actually the quarterly activity for Q420 uh, for the ETF MG, which saw approximately $240 million worth of inflows. And so MSOs has actually hit, it hit the 1 billion AUM threshold just close to the end of February, a milestone that the ETF MG really touched back in December. So interest in U.S. names has really exploded uh, on the back of that Democratic Senate sweep. So tell me again what ETF-MG means, just for the benefit of our audience that might not know. Sure, yeah. So the, the, the ETF-MG is uh, a cannabis um, ETF. It, it tracks um, essentially the Selective uh, Benchmark. It's the ETF-MG Alternative Harvest Index Fund. Right. It's simply... Uh, it's simply a, a broad-based uh, index tracking uh, fund that essentially follows um, broad-scale North American uh, cannabis exposure. So you've already mentioned that retail participation has been a broad trend um, that's really playing out, and that has brought in some volatility. How else has that played out in cannabis shares? Is it mainly volatility? 
Yeah, yeah. It's it's actually primarily volatility. I mean, earlier I, I, I spoke about how this played out specifically in February, citing those um, uh, those elevated options activity uh, across select names as an example. I think if we actually look at options across cannabis names in 2021, not only do we see those periods where execution has hit all-time highs, but in the first two months of 2021, average daily options volume across cannabis names is about three times higher than the daily average we saw in 2020. So really, this, this pickup in retail participation has exacerbated volatility. We know that the retail crowd, by virtue of what we saw in, uh, in GameStop, is very keen on, on leveraging options um, uh, as a tool for kind of, for, for kind of um, leading to, to, to volatile um, price movements in, in stocks that they can subsequently exploit or leverage. Moving a little bit off this, uh, the trading per se, but looking at mergers and acquisitions in the space, they've also accelerated in 2021. And I'm wondering why now, and if it's a trend that you see likely to continue. Yeah, so, so, so a good question. Um, I think M&A activity has actually been on the rise steadily through 2021, uh, and now it's definitely accelerated in 2021 as well. And the reason that's the case is the pickup we've seen essentially is really a reflection of expectations that deregulation across the U.S. cannabis space is imminent. With this in mind, many players, both U.S. and Canadian alike, have really been pursuing acquisitions in an effort to consolidate their footprint and really get a piece of the U.S. market. Now, outside of U.S. regulation being a key driver, lower interest rates, improving access to capital have generally been supportive factors. Now, some noteworthy M&A activity will include, you know, Acreage's acquisition of red, white, and blue brands, Ayer strategies. They've been generally quite aggressive on the acquisition front, and one of the more recent um, acquisitions will be the um, transaction involving Liberty Health Sciences. Cresco Labs uh, also recently acquired uh, Verdant Creations. And I think as we continue to see favorable developments on the U.S. regulation front, including um, the legalization of, uh, of, of cannabis in New Jersey, actually, uh, M&A activity across the space will, will remain robust at the very least and will, will actually very likely pick up. I wanted to ask you about that. In New Jersey legalizing recreational cannabis in February, um, that opens a whole new market down the East Coast, right? How significant is that development for the broader market? Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, the, the, the short answer is it's, it's quite significant, right? February's cannabis legislation in, in New Jersey was quite multifaceted. In addition to legalizing cannabis use for adults 21 and older, uh, it also removed penalties associated with the possession of small amounts of the drug. Um, New Jersey now actually joins approximately 14 states in Washington, D.C., all of whom that have actually legalized uh, marijuana specifically for recreational purposes. Now, legal sales likely remain months away, given that the state now needs to take on the task of creating a, a heavily regulated industry large enough to accommodate public demand. But once the market is created, officials are estimating roughly uh, $126 million in revenue a year. Now, projecting those estimates into the future can be a very difficult task. Uh, and of course, it's, it, it can be quite speculative, but some sources are quite aggressive forecasting approximately between 850 million to 950 million in annual retail sales by 2024. 
So to answer your question, the scope of the legislation and its potential market impact are both quite notable. And at a higher level, this development, of course, adds yet another state to the legalization bucket, so to speak, which really brings us that much closer to broad scale federal action. I'm wondering if you also are tracking companies that produce CBD products. Uh, Although numerous products are sold, CBD is largely unregulated by the, in the U.S. by the Food and Drug Administration. So what would be the market impact if the FDA were to regulate CBD products? Yeah, so that, that's a good question. Um, I, I will maybe take a step back here and say that there is a legal framework for the consumption and sale of, of CBD that's kind of under the, the, the FDA purview. The framework encompasses uh, stipulations that one prevents the inclusion of CBD or cannabis derived products in food uh, for human or animal consumption, and two, really disallow the marketing of CBD products as dietary or health supplements. It's also worth noting that the FDA has issued a lot of guidance on the substance given its recent proliferation. And furthermore, in, in late January, they expressed actually concern over how the substance is sold and marketed noting that many CBD companies have violated the existing legal framework when it comes to selling and marketing the substance. And so based on these developments, there's clearly an appetite to to increase CBD regulation, but to really do so in a way that balances both consumer safety on the one hand and business interests on the other. Now, given the nascence of the subsector, there's still more data needed on the safety and efficacy of various CBD products, a fact that even the FDA concedes. At the moment, there's really only one CBD product that the FDA has approved for medical use, and that's Epidiolex. And based on current FDA guidance, the the focus really remains centered on consumer safety. And this entails ensuring that CBD companies aren't marketing their products on the basis of extraordinary health claims. They're also heavily focused on uh, acquiring more data on the substance's various health uses. I would imagine that if CBD were more closely regulated by the FDA, it would be somewhat similar uh, to how we see the substance treated in, say, Canada. Here, uh, I actually think the market impact may be more favorable, as I would expect to see more data and research conducted on the substance, which would in turn uh, actually help inform a clear uh, legal regime for, for its use and consumption. So CBD is a controlled substance in Canada. Yes, correct. Yeah. And, and I mean, there is a market for CBD in Canada. Um, again, it's quite, it's quite hard to measure, but a simple look at the sheer scope of product diversity ranging from topicals to oils to edibles, et cetera, really provides a modest indication, I think, of the market size and, and alludes to robust demand. And uh, to answer your question, it, it is indeed a controlled substance in Canada. Um, CBD products and products containing the substance are ultimately subject to all of the rules uh, and requirements that, that essentially apply to cannabis under the Cannabis Act. Talking about CBD, I'm wondering if there's a distinct CBD industry in Canada that you're following. Yeah, I mean, um, to, to answer your question shortly, yes, there is, there is a, a CBD market uh, in Canada. In terms of determining its overall size, that's, it's actually quite hard to measure just simply by virtue of how uh, stats can actually report marijuana sales. But uh, a simple look at the sheer scope of product diversity, ranging from topicals to oils to edibles and to so much more, really provides a modest indication uh, of the market size and alludes to robust demand. With respect to regulation, CBD is fundamentally a controlled, a, a controlled substance in Canada. 
And as a result, CBD and products containing the substance are essentially subject to all of the rules and requirements that apply to cannabis uh, under the under the Cannabis Act. Great. Looking ahead, what other developments are on the horizon with recreational and medicinal cannabis? Yeah, so I mean, I, a really great question here. This is really the million dollar question. Um, first off, federal reform will be, the, will be the big one here. All eyes remain squarely focused on the shape federal deregulation efforts will take. And I think that the, the consensus here is that full-scale legalization is likely not on the table with decriminalization being the most likely alternative. Here, the ability to uplist on major exchanges will be a focal point as it would significantly enhance access to capital by U.S. players. It's also worth noting that this development may also see an increase in retail participation, especially as we consider that an additional round of stimulus is, is really imminent. And so it logically follows, given what we've discussed, that we may see some additional volatility across the space. I'm sure you'll be watching it as will we. But we really Absolutely. appreciate your update, Salim. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Suzanne. This is Suzanne Cosgrove reporting for John Lothian News.